Welcome to the Real Estate Secrets Podcast for healthcare professionals, hosted by Austin Hare and Nathan Palmer, who together have over two decades of real estate knowledge and investing. This show is about sharing lessons in commercial real estate that were learned from trial and error and working directly with CEOs of billion-dollar healthcare organizations. Our mission is to teach the insider strategies to everyday healthcare operators in order to get access to the best real estate at the best prices. Well, welcome back to our chapter six of Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. We're going to be going through an in-depth analysis of this chapter. We're almost halfway done. By the end of this, we'll be over halfway done. This chapter is called Bend the Reality, and there's some great nuggets in here that I'm excited to share with you guys. So we're going to talk about a story that happened back in Haiti during the early 2000s. They had the highest kidnapping rate in the world. And what would happen is these ski mask clad kidnappers that break into houses during the day, broad daylight, kidnap people every single day. And they were baffled at first because nobody knew why, nobody um, could figure out, you know, what was the motivation for it. But it turned out like these were not political moves. They were just so random. All they were was gangs that were trying to make money. Um, what happened was that most of the people were just so scared of the thugs that they simply gave in, they gave you know the money that was requested or demanded of them so that their loved ones wouldn't get hurt. And they're not thinking through this logically because fear and emotion kicks in, right? Your loved one is kidnapped and you just you cannot think straight, you can't reason the way you would in a normal situation. And so in one case, this man's uncle was kidnapped and $150,000 in ransom was demanded from the nephew. And we're going to talk about not compromising in this chapter. So we're oftentimes taught to look for the win-win solutions. What's the win-win for the $150,000 ransom in exchange for the guy's life, right? If you do this approach, a person who has a win-lose approach, then you're setting yourself up to be swindled because there is no win-win. You, you know, yes, you get the person back, but you get $150,000 out of, you know, out of your pocket or, or most people don't have that kind of money. So how do you create a win-win situation in that scenario, right? So compromise can lead to terrible outcomes. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, oftentimes, no deal is better than a bad deal. And to illustrate this example, think about a wife who wants her husband to wear brown shoes. And she thinks that they just look a lot better with his outfit. But the husband wants to wear black shoes. So in a win-win situation, what do you do? You compromise. What happens when you compromise? One black shoe and one brown shoe. That's meeting halfway. So in this case, is the worst possible outcome. Either of the other two outcomes would have been better than trying to split the difference. And this happens a lot of times during negotiations. We've been told that compromising is, is a sacred and it's a moral good. And But think back to the ransom situation. You know, Why should the nephew have to pay anything for the ransom? This is the, nothing is moral or good about that. Even paying... 75,000 of the 150,000 is not a good deal. And that would be splitting the difference, right? Uh, most people are driven by fear or the desire to avoid pain. And that's a really popular and important human emotion to take into consideration. Too few are driven by their actual goals. So don't settle and never split the difference. Let's talk about deadlines for a second. Deadlines can be used against you, and that's why it's important to make them your ally. So using this to your advantage can make it seem like getting a deal done now is better than getting no deal at all. It goes back to a person's fear, that fear of getting no deal. And we have a natural tendency to rush as a deadline approaches. That's just 
human nature because we want to get a deal done. And good negotiators force themselves to resist this urge and they take advantage of it with others. So if you are, if someone is telling you a deadline, the good negotiator will resist bending to the will of that deadline because a lot of times they're uh, not so much in concrete as you might think, but creating a deadline allows you to take advantage of this psychic or you know psychological effect that it has on people. So, um, and, and why do we do this? Well, because of the consequences, right? So you think that after the deadline is done, the deal is off. Um, and your counterpart can kick back and let the imaginary deadline do the work for them. So let's talk about missed deadlines. Deadlines are almost always without consequence and are almost always completely arbitrary, contrary to what your counterpart might want, might want you to think or believe. And they're almost always exclusively figments of our imaginations. Now, not always, okay? There are, there are like the plane leaving is a deadline, right? But um, in a negotiation sense, they're almost always figments of our imagination. And if we can teach clients patience, then we can leave the ball in their hand. So all the Haitian thugs were just guys who wanted to get paid by the weekend so that they could go party. And they discovered this because um, they realized that the, the kidnappings were happening, you know, on Mondays and Tuesdays. And it was really strange. It was like, okay, do why? Like, these are not nine to five guys. Like, it's not like their jobs start at, you know, what, it's not like kidnapping is a formalized industry and they started thinking through it. It's like, well, what, what happens? Like, why do they always get settled on a Friday? Well, because that's the weekend. They wanted to go party. And this realization gave the negotiators a lot of leverage. They realized that they could offer much less since it would not take $150,000 to have a good time in Haiti. Essentially, all these guys really needed, the deadlines that they were drive, using in their own minds was to have a good time that weekend. And then Monday would come and they would start over again. Now, deadlines can cut both ways. So, you know, here's the deal. Hiding your deadline puts you in the worst possible position if you don't tell them because you're going to end up negotiating with yourself at the end of the day. That's what it comes down to. And, and then also when your opponent knows, the benefit is that he'll get to the real deal and concession making a lot more quickly. So if he knows that there's a deadline coming until this deal is perceivably off the table, he'll start trying to make it happen too. And like I said before, deadlines are almost never ironclad. Now let's talk about this. There's no such thing as fair. I, there was a game that, that Chris played with his students. They called it the ultimating game. And the students were split into the proposer and the acceptor. And what happens is that you're given $10 and then you're told all you have to do is decide how to split the money before the deadline or you have to give it back, right? And remember, this is a game on fairness, on the psychology behind fairness. And so you have all these different proposers and acceptor teams in the classroom going around negotiating and essentially you know you could have one dollar nine dollars or you could have five dollars each uh the only thing the only rule is that if you don't agree on the amount then you got to give it back so after the exercise was done there's all types of different amounts and everybody was arguing that they used logic and reason to come up with the amount that they arrived on but how can one person claim logic, reason, and fairness with a $1, $9 split while you have another team who has a $5, $5 split claiming logic, reason, and fairness. If there was a, if there was a true universal truth about logic and fairness, then everybody would have had the exact same amount, but they didn't, which shows you that it's all arbitrary, right? So $9 from the person offering makes sense logically and offering $1 to the counterpart 
or the acceptor is a logical um, uh, uh, proposition for the proposer. And so the exercise is just really to get you thinking like, okay, fair is arbitrary. Now we might use logic and reason towards a decision. The actual decisions are made with emotions. And the metaphor that I like to think about for this is an elephant that represents your emotions. And the guy on top riding the elephant it represents your logic. So logically, you might be thinking through things and wanting to make certain decisions, but overall, you cannot control an emotional elephant based on logic, right? They are the ones who are going to be driving the ship. The F word, fair. So they did an experiment with monkeys where they had them assigned to do certain tasks. They did the exact same tax, tasks. However, one got paid in grapes and one got paid in cucumbers for doing the exact same task. And as you can imagine, because they saw the gifts that were given, the rewards that were given, the one who got the cucumbers literally went bananas just by watching his, um, the other monkey get the grapes. So another example is uh, Robin Williams in the movie Aladdin. He played the genie. Normally he was getting paid $8 million for his movies back in that day. And he, for whatever reason, he said that he'd do this for $75,000, right? He just wanted to get the project done. And so everything was totally fine until the movie just blew up and it generated over $500 million in revenue. It was a, obviously a huge blockbuster. Everybody knows that the name Aladdin from Disney. And then he just went ballistic, right? And so he signed the contract. It was totally fair, right? He agreed to um, what he thought was a good amount. And then later he saw how much money there was and he compared it and he then decided it wasn't fair, right? So there, it was his own perception of the events that made him come to the decision in his mind of whether or not it was fair what he got and luckily you know disney wanted he went ballistic right and the contract was available for the public to see luckily disney wanted to keep their star character uh you know actor voice actor happy and they sent him like a one million dollar picasso painting uh, so the the f word the fair is a tremendously powerful word to be used with care when someone implies you're being unfair leads to a lot of uneasiness, right? Um, and then you can also say, we've given you a fair offer, right? And it implies that you're being fair. And if you're on the other end, then you can mirror this. So you can say a fair offer, right? That would be an example of a mirror. But um, the, the use of the F word that generates the most positive and constructive outcomes is by using it to your advantage. So what Chris does is pre-framing the entire negotiation with a couple sentences that set the ball and set the pace. So early on, you just say that you wanted to feel that they're being treated fair at all times. So what you'd say is, hey, if you feel that you're not being treated fairly, then please let me know because I want to treat you fair at all times. So give them permission to tell you if they feel otherwise. And then what this does is it gives them right off the bat a sense of fairness and control at the exact same time. So I think clarifying that early on is monumental for creating positive outcomes. Now let's talk about bending their reality. Imagine I give you $20 to get me a cup of coffee. Okay, small task, won't take you long, takes five minutes, you do the math, that's $400 an hour. Okay, you're pretty happy making $400 an hour, right? However, if you find out that during that time, I made a $1 million, I made $1 million. Now what happens? Well, you feel like you got ripped off, okay? <laughs> so there's a human, um, psychological term called loss aversion and what it means is that people take greater risks to avoid losses than to achieve gains and people are drawn to sure things over probabilities so just let that sink in for a moment and think about 
how you can use this in any negotiation. You probably could have used it in any negotiation in the past, and you can definitely use it for negotiations in the future. And that's why people who statistically have no need for insurance buy it. I mean, why does a 25-year-old buy life insurance, right? So as a person who's told that he has a 95% chance of receiving $10,000 or a 100% chance of receiving $9,499 will usually almost always avoid the risk and take the 100% option, which is logical. I mean, you can understand why he wouldn't want to risk it for 5% less. However, that exact same person who's told that he has a 95% chance of losing $10,000 or a 100% chance of losing $9,499 will take the opposite choice, risking the bigger amount in order to avoid the loss. And that is a clear picture of loss aversion working at its finest. So even though the amount is more, and he's probably going to lose it, he's willing to take that chance because he doesn't want to lose what he's already have, what he already has. In a tough negotiation, it's not enough to persuade them that they can get what they want. You also have to show them what they'll lose, thus catering to the loss aversion uh, psychiatric or psych- psychological term. So let's talk about anchoring their emotions. We start with a basis of empathy, okay? Make it known how much they have to lose if they say no. Um, after the FBI, Chris was working construction and what happened was they had this massive budget cut and so they could only offer these guys $500 a day and their normal rate was $2,000 a day so you know less than about 25% of what they would make during a, a normal gig and so you can imagine if you'd call them out and say hey sorry I can't pay you two grand I can only pay 500 well they laugh them out of the building right and what you have to do is create an emotional anchor and then switch to loss aversion so there's two techniques at work there so in this case, Chris started by saying, hey guys, I got a lousy proposition for you. By the time we get off the phone, you're going to think I'm a lousy businessman. You'll think I can't get a budget or plan, or you'll, you'll think I can't budget or plan. You'll think that I'm a big talker and I don't know how to run an operation. You may even think that I lied to you. So see what he's doing? That's called an emotional anchor. He's setting the expectation very, very low. And after the emotional anchor was set with low expectations, he played on their loss aversion. He let them know that, hey, I wanted to offer this to you before bringing it to anybody else, okay? And what happened was it wasn't about being cut from 2K to 500. They already had a low expectation in their mind. But it became about not losing that $500 to somebody else. And if he hadn't have set that emotional anchor, you know, they'd have taken it as an insult. And the pre-frame with that emotional anchor made all the difference because every single person took the deal without even a counteroffer, which is crazy. Let the other guy go first. Um, letting the other side anchor monetary expectations is a good rule of thumb when you don't know the industry as well. Okay, so letting if you if you're not sure like about the expectations and you're not like an expert in the industry, letting the other side offer something out first is very very helpful because you could end up shooting yourself in the foot. You could offer something way for way less than you should. Right? You could be asking for way less than you should. Or you might insult them by, you know, whatever it is. If you're not very, very, very comfortable in that industry, let them go first. If you have no idea where the conversation is going. But be careful and be ready to psychically withstand the first offer, okay? Because they might also be setting a crazy anchor. Um, If they're a pro, I mean, they'll go for an extreme anchor to bend reality. 
the anchor adjustment effect is when we tend to make adjustments from our first reference point. And that's, it happens against us, but you can use it for you as well. You know, thinking about eight times seven times six times five times four times three times two times one, when you think about that sequence of numbers, it feels a lot higher than one times two times three times four times five times six times seven times eight. Now, obviously they yield the exact same mathematical outcome, but it's because we base our calculations off that first number. So that's the whole premise behind setting an anchor. And you know, that's not to say you never open with an anchor. Like if you're dealing with a rookie, you might throw out an extreme anchor to get the, to get the ball rolling and to set the odds in your favor. But even if you're dealing with a veteran and you know this industry super, super well, like in our case, real estate, then you might start out with a low anchor as well. But one thing to think about, you know, if you are dealing with a rookie, your reputation precedes you. And so if you get too good at negotiating to the sense where it's not fair for your counterpart at all, then your reputation is going to be the guy who always wins, who never gives any concessions. They're not, nobody's going to want to negotiate with you in business, and then it's counterproductive in the long term. So the point is, the goal here is not to take advantage of people, okay? It's just to simply not leave money on the table. Another thing that you can do is establish a range instead of just a low anchor point. So alluding to a range will really help. Um, it makes you seem less aggressive. So what you can do is recall a similar deal and give an example, right? So if you're negotiating a salary, you can say, hey, at a nice firm such as X Corporation, you know, starting salaries are usually somewhere between 130 and 170,000, right? And so, like, let's, you could use that example if you know that they're trying to negotiate your salary somewhere between 100,000 and 120,000. You know, that range is higher than the the low than the highest expectation they have. But you're not seeming aggressive because you're you're just pointing out what other people are doing, and you're also you're not demanding a certain number that that. Uh, lack of, you know, precision gives this feeling of, um, you know, ambiguity with your, your counterpart. And so you get your point across without making them feel antagonistic. Job applicants who referenced a range received a higher salary than those who just gave a number. Statistically, there's reports done on that. So if you do offer a range, just remember, expect them to come back at the lowest part of the range. So the, lo so the range should be, the lowest part should be, um, the minimum that you're you're shooting for. Another technique that you can use is pivoting to non-monetary terms during a negotiation. So we get hung up on price a lot of the times, not only you, but your counterpart. And if you pivot to a non-monetary term after you set a high number by offering things that might be high value to them, but not much value to you, then you can work the negotiation in your favor. So throw out examples to start the negotiation process. For example, um, you know, Chris Voss was offered to do a gig and they were bidding him up a lot on the price and he wasn't going to do it, but then they offered him the cover of their magazine that had a pretty well uh, circulated publication across the country. And so to him, that was like free advertising. I mean, it was, it could lead to a ton of deals. It didn't cost them anything. They had to put somebody on the cover. So it might as well be him, right? And it was, it was able, they were able to offer him something non-monetary. They got him to accept a much lower fee. He got something of value in exchange. So it works both ways. Another technique is to use odd numbers. Numbers that end in zero feel like temporary placeholders. Yeah, how much is, are you asking $10,000? It's a very flat number. A lot of times people will counter at 5,000, right? Well, if you offer something like 32,757, feels like a lot more permanent amount. Feels like some thought has been put into that and this might be the lowest they're willing to go or the highest you're willing to pay. Another technique 
that goes very well in conjunction with an anchor, uh, especially a low anchor, is surprising them with a gift. So you can hit them with an extremely low anchor and then probably reject it. I mean, that's what anchors are there for. And then offer them a wholly unrelated gift, right? Like something that doesn't have to do with your negotiation at all. And then an unexpected gesture like this it will generate this feeling of reciprocity. So when you come back to the negotiation table, they will feel like they owe you something. Um, let's switch back to the, the kidnapping in Haiti real quick. Um, you know, what they realized was the family could pay between, you know, fifty and $80,000. But the FBI decided they were not going to pay any more than $5,000, even though the kidnappers had asked for $150,000. It was kind of more like, you know, a... a um, negotiator pride, if you will. And they started by anchoring with the fact that they didn't have any money. So the kidnappers had said, hey, we want $150,000. And the nephew responded, well, how am I supposed to do that? And then the kidnapper threatened to to uh, hurt, the, hurt the person again. And the nephew responded, look, how are we supposed to pay you if you're going to hurt them? And the kidnappers obviously wanted to avoid actually killing them if they could because that meant that they wouldn't get paid. And so the nephew didn't mention the price at all and the kidnappers suddenly just dropped it to $50,000. So they all he did was ask two open-ended questions. You know, how am I supposed to do that? And how are we supposed to pay if, if you're gonna hurt them? So techniques can be working well. So again, he said, they dropped $50,000 and the nephew said, how can I come up with that kind of money? <laughs> then the guy, the kidnapper dropped their demand to $25,000. And then what happened was the nephew just dropped an extremely low anchor of $3,000. Line went silent as the reality set in for these kidnappers. And then they countered back with $10,000. The nephew answered with a strange amount, $4,751. The new price asked by the kidnappers was $7,500. The response was that he of the nephew was that he simultaneously threw in a stereo and then he offered them the exact same dollar amount $4,751. So at this stage the kidnappers felt like no more money was on the table and they said yes. So you can see all of the different premises that were used in that chapter to get them down. I mean they from 150,000 all the way down to $4,700 is is a pretty amazing jump. Key lessons that we talked about today. Um, the tools here may seem manipulative, but all they do is recognize the human mind for what it is. It's emotional, okay? It is, um, it's not amoral, it's not unfair, affair is subjective, and if you know how the human brain works, then it's only rational to use these tools in a negotiation. All negotiations are defined by a network of subconscious needs. So after you know, like the kidnappers just want the money to party, you'll be better prepared, right? So think about these underlying motivations and these emotions. Splitting the difference is wearing one black and one brown shoe, right? A bad deal for both sides. I remember creating deadlines entice people to rush the process and make impulse decisions. So um, when your counterpart drops the F-bomb, fair, right? Don't get suckered in, but instead ask them to explain their reasoning for fair. Been your counterpart's reality by anchoring their starting point by setting a low emotional anchor like we talked about with the construction. And remember, when you, when you get to numbers, set an extreme anchor to make your offer seem reasonable. And using a range will always make you seem less aggressive. Loss aversion, remember, people will 
take more risks to avoid a loss than to secure a gain. So keep that in the back of your mind. And make sure them make sure to let them know how much they have to lose by not working with you. All right, that was chapter six, and we will continue with um, the rest of the book, and hopefully provide as much value as possible by taking these uh, complex subjects and making them a little bit more simple and quick to get through at the same time. So uh, stay tuned and have a good day. We will talk to you guys soon. If you need help finding the perfect location for your practice or you're ready to invest in commercial real estate, email us podcast at leadersre.com. That's podcast at leadersre, re as in realestate.com. Or go to www.leadersre.com and fill out our form. See you next time. Thank you.